0: In this evening talk, I would like to endeavor to weave into the fact that today is regarded and is being celebrated here in North America and in some other parts of the world as Earth Day. And it's one of our peculiar idiosyncrasies as human beings that we celebrate Earth Day when it's fairly apparent to any intelligence that Earth Day is every day. But however, and in looking at Earth Day, as uh, I understand that some 20 years ago, this particular day was earmarked to acknowledge the Earth and the condition of the Earth and our relationship to it. And In the space of 20 years, from 1970 until 1990, there have been profound and significant changes in our state of the earth, in the state of the whole ecosystem. And in speaking with you this evening, I would like to address that, but address that particularly in the context of being here and the relationship of being in this situation to what we are describing and speaking of as Earth Day. Sometimes when we are exposed to the widespread reports that information technology provide us with every day, it's not unusual, of course, for us as people of the Earth to be quite alarmed by the changes and the speed of changes which are taking place. And if I may just pinpoint a few of these and the way that these are affecting our Earth. One, and it's not in any hierarchy here, one of course has to be the population explosion. That the population explosion, meaning that the figure of 4 billion was turned in 1974. By 1987, that figure had turned the 5 billion mark in the space of 12 or 13 years. And the United Nations, in its report last year, now tell us that by 1997, that figure will then turn to a 6 billion figure. And we see that not only is the widespread increase in population occurring, but also the gap in perhaps the far more significant, the gap between those who have and those who do not have on the earth is actually getting greater year by year. And this ought to be for us, I think, an immense area of concern. And the tendency, which I think we often have as human beings, and particularly in our Western society, is to find scapegoats. And we have quite conveniently, on different occasions, over the years, found our scapegoats, of course, in the third world. And as any ecologist with a little bit of knowledge and understanding recognizes, it's not so much numbers itself, but the way resources and energy is actually used. And in the West and in the United States, as I understand the average person, will use 75 times the amount of energy that the average person, say, will use in the subcontinent of India. And it's energy and conservation. And these things matter. And being here, in this situation here, Um, there is a collective, a community of us spending some time together. And therefore, within the context of this situation, we are minimalizing our use of energy resources. Of course, it can be much further but how much we are able here to simplify our living circumstances. And that recognition and appreciation of doing that here is something which immediately benefits ourselves, but equally has benefit for other people as well. When we look at this earth that we are living in, we see that each year, that with regard to the tropical rainforest, that something like 1% of the tropical rainforests disappear year by year, often for very small reasons, to save a few cents on the cost of a hamburger or whatever. An immense, widespread destruction. In November, in Australia, I was teaching a retreat in the forest for 16 or 17 days. I've been to this particular forest in northern New South Wales, uh, every two or three years since the mid-seventies. And one part of this forest, it is subtropical rainforest, just two or three hundred metres from where the meditation hall is, which was built incidentally out of the falling trees of the forest. And in going walking through the undergrowth and being in a lovely nature of things, I said to my friends, it does seem to me, even here, fairly isolated area, that there aren't that number of creatures that were here, and is one's memory deceiving oneself. Just in terms of the snakes and the creepy crawlies and the leeches and the possums and the lizards and all of that, which were part of the environment in which we as meditators would come and spend a couple of weeks together in the retreat. And people say that they too had felt that there was deterioration of the wildlife which is taking place. All this, I think, many areas of our life express in the matter of the earth and on earth day, on every day, that in a way we're taking the life around us, away from ourselves. We're losing life. In a way we're losing something which we are inherently and in, connected and related to. And I hope that in our days, both here on earth day and in other situations, there We really do look at these situations with real deep, I think, feel concern. And one of the things which I noticed in my travels, and if I may say I have to travel quite considerably, and that also raises questions in my mind. For example, when I got a rather alarming piece of information, which of course was brought out by the motor car industry to serve its own ends, and the motor car industry said, that for a person to fly, for one aeroplane to fly from London to New York, a distance of 5,000 kilometres, 3,000 miles, more oil is used on that flight than all the sports car competitions and practices for the sports car competitions is used throughout one year. So each time people like myself and yourself board an aeroplane with two, three, four hundred people on it is a very privileged position to be in and it certainly contributes to pollution, to harming the environment and all that you and I can be concerned and protest about. And there it is that people like me who call myself an activist and an environmentalist and so forth flitting around the world in this privileged position, preaching left, right and centre. And the only justification that I can say to this way of living, and that's four continents in the last four months, months—that only contribution that I can say is that what I say, that's the, all the only criteria here, what I say, if it, it has to make some difference to your life. It has to bring out awareness and action and letting go, and deeper values of life. If it doesn't do that, then I am not in any position to complain about polluters, and I can be easily accused of being one of the major polluters of the planet, just by the way I travel. We see that when we look into our situations here, it's not just the form, the method, the techniques, and all that goes with it what is also being considered is a kind of value of the lifestyle and the sense for living with things, for making things last, for the appropriate skillful use of things which includes ourselves and what we have around us and finding an appreciation for that and there are times and opportunities while we are here to make time for that to actually reflect on these things and I think one of the values of the monk's life and the nun's life though many here will never do anything like shave their head and put on red robes and things like that but certainly in a positive way can be a very clear reminder to us as well as people like staffs at retreat centres to the value of living simply living non exploitatively. The other areas, too, in looking at the global level, as I mentioned, population and pollution and tropical rainforests and the the hole in the ozone layer and the greenhouse effect and the damage that's being done to our environment, land, sea, water, air, all of that. I think in some way or other the spiritual dimension of things, the deeper awarenesses of life, for us, have to start including those awarenesses that there is an appropriateness in the actions that we engage in here, and really looking into ourselves. But it's looking into ourselves to see what comes out of it. And the Buddha has used a lovely term, it's constantly touched me very deeply, and like many things in life, we don't have the English word to communicate it. It's called Anukampa. Anukampa. What he says of, He says, in this work, in these teachings, in these practices, what comes from it is this anukampa. Anukampa, it means being moved for others. Being moved for others. And so he gives many different examples of this being anukampa, this being moved out of concern, out of consideration for others. And in one situation, of course, there are frequent obvious examples of this being moved for others. And even in a retreat situation, which is apparently fairly isolated from each other, not even a lot of eye contact, not much communication going on, but tremendous opportunity to be moved for others, act at a consideration for others. And so the very clear examples of that, which is expressed in daily life. But then once Mahakasipa said to the Buddha, I am going into the forest. And the forest has always been spoken of with immense respect in the Buddhist tradition and having the privilege of living in the forest. Go and get a sense of what that means. That He says, I'm going to live in the forest, in solitude, without discourse with others, without communication. And then he said, I'm going to do this for Anukampa. I'm doing this out of consideration for others. So then he was asked, why? What does it mean to go into solitude out of consideration for others? And he says, in doing this, he said, I hope that not only the people of the present, but he says, those of the future who will come into this world will be inspired by exploration of solitude, by this state of living in the bare nature of the forest, by the austerity of living, as he said, with the robes, by mindfulness and the arousing of energy to look into things. And I remember having had the privilege of being a monk, of knowing those passages like that, and realising that in solitude, And knowing the long tradition, in this case the Buddhist tradition of exploration of solitude, how much inspiration it gave me. He did that for me. He did it for us. Finding a sense of solitude and aloneness. Here we find it through our silence. So in our silence here, in just in the exploration here, it might be that the primary thought arising is doing this for myself but if we connect a little bit with each other if we begin to sense each other that our very act of silence together through the day is such that it may be that we don't want to disturb others, we don't want to intrude into their space we don't want to uh, affect the vibration of things and then out of it comes this a new Kampa, this doing for others so I think sometimes when meditation work and reflection and those deeper inquiries into ourself that people say, oh, it leads to isolation. It leads to navel-gazing. It leads to being a Hinayana. It leads to only interest in personal salvation or whatever. I would say that can't be what meditation is. That can't be a contemplative awareness on life. Where that happens. The navel-gazing syndrome in life, it says nothing about awareness and exploration. What it says is the person has a tendency to withdraw. An unexamined, unexplored tendency towards escapism. It doesn't say anything about awareness and exploration and meditation, it says something about the tendency of the mind. So when the Buddha, giving the teachings, he says, out of the teachings, out of awareness of body, feelings, mind states, out of the former practice, comes this anukampa, comes this engagement for others. And if we don't understand that, if we haven't understood that, then it's a great tragedy. Sometimes in being in the forest, and my goodness me, there are 80 acres of forest here. There are walking periods during the day. One doesn't have to create tread marks in the walking hall behind, you know. One can go and walk mindfully and consciously in the forest. And as the scientists tell us, 60,000 years ago, you and I walked out of the forest. Our original home on earth has its roots in the forest. We came out of the tropical rainforest in the human form like this and we walked into the other environments. And sometimes we've forgotten our roots, we've neglected our roots and sometimes we need to experience the forest. We need to know that that intimacy again and again of the organic world has juxtaposed to the technological mechanistic one which overshadows consciousness to an alarming degree. Sometimes when we look at the world and in our relationship to the the world of events we see things around and in seeing things which disturb us that it's sometimes quite necessary to protest, to say no, to stop, to explore other ways of looking at situations. And sometimes I feel it's very important in spiritual life and in this concern for others to be able to say no and to trust in that decision-making. And I think, as the spiritual tradition has frequently said, stopping is an essential feature of spiritual life. And once, I may say, to bring in a little bit of the Buddha's teachings again, there's the famous story of Angulimala. Not very often I talk about the, the Buddha, I must add. It's, uh, perhaps it's Nostalgia Day, not Earth Day, anyway. <laughs> so, it could be um, my birthday today, I should add this. So, in the Buddha once was going from one village to another, And the people in the village said to him, Hey, look, don't go through that forest along that pathway. There is a villain, a murderer, living on that road called Angulimala. And it's just madness to take that walk. And the Buddha, for one reason or another, probably naivety, decided to walk walk through this forest from going from one village to the next. Out of it came, the forest came, Angulimala, and Angulimala, and then Gulimala said, Hey, you! And the Buddha kept on uh, walking. And then Angulimala shouted out to him and caught him up, and he said, Generally speaking, there are three things that a person does when they hear my shout and my cry with the sword. Either they run, or they try to fight me, or they beg for mercy. The three typical responses in the face of fear of another. And the Buddha said in the old text, the Buddha kept on walking and then Gulimala started shouting at him, stop! And the Buddha kept on walking and then he, the Buddha turned over his shoulder and he said, and Gulimala, I've stopped. And Gulimala completely perplexed by somebody still walking and claiming that he's stopped. (laughs) And what do you mean by this? And and Gulimala said, and the Buddha said, my violence has stopped, my rage has stopped, my aggression has stopped, my fear has stopped. That's what I mean, what has stopped. And out of that came a whole dialogue with this man and Gulimala. And I think in this situation here, in a kind of contemporary expression of it, what one is saying is, right now I'm stepping out of my doings, my typical doings that fashion my mind and my consciousness, my life, but more than that, my environment, and I'm stopping. And in my stopping, I'm stopping to look and look and look again and again. And I think this action, this willingness to stop and to look, means that human beings have the potential and the possibility for really discovering. If we don't stop, if we don't allow ourselves to call a halt, no matter how much we are involved in things and doing things, and no matter how good we claim, if we don't stop and look, I suspect that the good will find they will go to hellishness as much as those who are violent and exploitive. So there are opportunities for us during the day to to stop just in small ways and small gestures when something is going on within ourselves. Just in that moment, to actually say, let me pause for a moment, let me just take a moment to see what's happening there, what I can find out there. A story, it's a family story. In January, my father died. Henrietta and I and other friends were in India, and I, as I've been doing since the mid-70s, giving the retreats in... Bhutgaya, which is the place where the Buddha was awakened, and have gone there annually since. And then we received a telegram that my father had been taken uh, into the hospital, and within 24 hours he had died. And he had said, my mother told me, that just when I arrived in the hospital, he said to my mother that it was time to say goodbye. And it wasn't an unexpected event. But then, the month before, my mother told me, he related to her a story which occurred during the Second World War. And when I heard this story, it really touched me. And my father, and perhaps like some of your parents too, and some of you who may well have experienced the awesome tragedy of war, was always very reluctant ever to speak about war. One couldn't get anything out of him. he just say, that's past, it's gone, I don't want to talk about it or whatever. So the amount of information that I and my mother had was minimal, minimal. We knew that he was 20 when the war started. He did six weeks training with the rifle. He was sent to France. British Army were pushed back. He was on the beaches of Dunkirk. And that was about what we knew. Then he was watching one of these Hollywood war movies. This was in December. And the incident that he recalled, he was crying about. My mother said that they were making the trek across the Rhine and the push of the Allied forces were towards Berlin. And they were going through the towns and the villages. And there were two of them, him and his friend Bristow, he said, and they were in somebody's small cottage in the street of the village, with both rifles crouching by the window, window open, two rifles pointing down the street. And as the last of the German defences were being broken down and there was sniper firing and all of that taking place, they had been there watching this particular street when suddenly, out of the, around the street, came a German soldier, my father said, just running down the street. And with the rifles they put the rifle up there and they pointed the rifle at this uh, young soldier's head, no idea what he was doing, and with the trigger slowly being squeezed and him right in the rifle's eye. And then my father said, wait a minute, just wait a minute. And seconds later, he, and the two men just stopped from the fraction of a centimeter to pull the rest of that trigger. And that very moment... A young woman and a baby opened the door of a cottage on the opposite side and ran down the street and ran and ran straight into the arms of the soldier. And my father said, relating this to my mother, my father said, that young guy, he said, what a bloody asshole. And nearly shot him. And he's there and it was his wife and his kid and he was running down the street, running home, back to her. And he said, if I had pulled that trigger, if I hadn't stopped in that moment, if I had pulled that trigger one bit more, he said, I would never have forgiven myself for the rest of my life for having done that, because I would have killed him right in front of his wife and kid. It was the only story he ever told. The only thing that ever emerged out of him from fighting 1939 to 1945. I just related that story in Germany. I was just in Bonn two or three weeks ago. I just related that story. And when I related that story, the thought arose in me, in the relating of that story, it could be in this world of immense coincidences that the child of that father is in this meditation hall. So sometimes... When we say, I want to stop, let me just stop for a moment. Let me just look again what the push of my actions are and where they are leading. When we say stop, as the Buddha has said and all spiritual teachers past and present say, the whole universe is affected by one who stops for a moment. Everything changes forevermore because of one who stops. So the teachings here, they are teachings of stopping Sometimes in small ways, small gestures which we engage in, can really contribute to a sense of that, a real, a real feeling of that. Give you a, a small illustration myself today. During today, and, and like you, the three of us, Henrietta and Eric and I, probably are engaging in more talking than uh, you are, more listening and asking. Questions and being asked questions. And that one has to talk to feel thirsty, but uh, I'm upstairs, you know, just feeling thirsty. Normal, intention minded. Oh, if you're thirsty, let me go and get some water, some juice. Having been here twice a year since 77, I more or less know where they keep the orange juice, which part of the fridge. So, thirst. Wish to move, action, I know the spot for relief. So, maybe it's because I was given a little thought about what I was going to talk about tonight. It inspired me, I'm not sure. But anyway, just for a moment, I said, "Forget forget it. I'll just stop, be still. Let me just feel the sensation of feeling thirsty. Let me see what response comes out of my state of just feeling thirsty. And in the moment of doing that, the response that began to come out was of the human beings right now who are feeling desperately thirsty. An increased awareness of my privilege as a human being, as uh, of my blessed condition, which you and I share, and an increased concern and feeling for others. And what in terms of anukampa, what can come out of that to serve others. And I just think something in the stopping does give us access to what we might describe as the very best in ourselves. Let will give you another example on the inner and the outer. Uh, initially I was quite reluctant to bring this piece of paper down and read it, but I thought it was such a small thing. And since it doesn't take any uh, imagination or, or courage in, in any way, I thought I'd write to uh, read it too. It's from the front page of our local uh, newspaper, and it concerns a small protest which I am making. And so I have a photocopy of it here. So I wanted to read this. You may well have been reading, and I, like, I want to mention this because the inspiration for this is that fabulous human being Toro and I'll relate the relationship. Southam's Green Party candidate in the last general election, Christopher Tipness, had written to Southam's district council to say that he is refusing to pay his poll tax bill of £320. Mr Tipness of Dennis Road, Totnes, has sent copies of his letter to the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, Secretary of the State for the Environment, Christopher Patton, and Southam's Member of Parliament, Anthony Steen. Mr. Titmuss, who is a committee member of the Southam's Green Party, is to hold a public meeting at Totnes Civic Hall on Wednesday under the title, Is the Poll Tax Fair. In his letter to District Council Treasurer Mr. Paul West, Mr. Titmuss says he will not pay his poll tax bill as it's presently constituted. Quote, I believe that the government has simply rushed through this piece of legislation without considering the consequences of it upon the lives of millions of people who are already poor and now will become even poorer, writes Mr. Titmuss. I know there are many people in South Ham's as well as the rest of the country who struggle week in and week out to make ends meet. The Green Party member adds the poll tax goes completely against the ingrained British sense of justice and fair play. I simply cannot support this injustice in any way and self and no I didn't need that thank you I much prefer that you pay the fine Uh, (laughs) 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 and I think sometimes in looking at situations and we see then sometimes the stopping and the saying no becomes part of our concern and part of that small contribution which is necessary to civil disobedience. And I remember with Thoreau and Walden's Pond, which many of you know is not so very far from here, it was a poll tax in put out at the time of Thoreau in this country and Thoreau too refused to pay. And he was in prison and his great friend and if not mentor, Emerson, came to see him and Emerson said to Thoreau what are you doing in here and Thoreau's classic reply beautiful is what are you doing out there <laughs> <laughs> and i think within the spiritual movement that our relationship to anu kampa acting for the welfare for the concern for others is part of the inspiration is part of the responsibility and it reflects to us our relationship that we understand that we are living in the world, we are of the world, we are born of the earth, we return to the earth and that relationship that goes on every single breath of our life. Incidentally with this, I don't know how it is in America, North America here, but after some time there will be some uh, prosecution, and one will go to the magistrate's court. The rumor is that the activists uh, like myself would be the first ones to be targeted for prosecution. The fine is a 400 pound fine. It's about six or seven hundred dollars. If one refuses to pay, they send the bailiffs round, and you open the door, and they get the foot in, then they can come and take out of your home the value of seven hundred dollars, four hundred pounds, and they set this up for auction, and one's goods are sold off. And if one stops them from doing that because they can't bash the door in or anything, then one then one's uh, becomes a guest of Her Majesty's government in uh, one of our uh, prisons. Which, and rather amusingly, as long as you're in prison in Britain, you don't have to pay the poll tax. You're exempt. <laughs> but apparently, as soon as you come out, they are. Uh, are back. Anyway, that's the scenario. So again, in situations in our life, I think here the sense of stopping means out of stopping something starts. Not that stopping is something special and unique unto itself and to give it some uniqueness in life, but out of the stopping, something comes out of that. And every moment of the day, every unfoldment of the day, every a rest of the mind state, every willingness to let go of a pattern of thought, every moment to say, let me stop and be still, is a moment for opportunity, for infinite discovery. And one thing seems to be for sure, finally, for us as people, and particularly in our culture and in our society at this time, if we don't stop the way of living which is environmentally, ecologically, spiritually, economically, socially destructive. If we don't stop, what is it going to be like in a few years' time? How already, how already it's so devastating for so many people of the earth already. So I think in spiritual terms we have an immense opportunity here here while we're actually here during these days together. And here while we're living and breathing on this earth. And I hope that we're up to the occasion of it. I really hope we are up to it. It's up to you and it's up to me. And we need a whole movement which says it has to stop. It has to change. We have to find something a way of living which is self-supporting and self-sustaining and which is respectful to all of life, including respectful to oneself and respectful to others. That has to be a primary consideration for our life. So let's, in our time here, let's not consider things in a kind of self-small way. Let's see it as an exploration of something fast. Let's keep that sense of that as we walk, as we sit, as we engage in being on the earth. May all beings see into life. May all beings be willing to say no. May all beings experience a new Kampala.